You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. What are you getting so crazy about? It's just music. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I look at the success of music video games like Rock Band and Guitar Hero and find out where the music fits in. Plus, we'll review two of the most anticipated albums of the fall from The Flaming Lips and The Gossip. Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing and their new mixed speaker system, the next-generation boombox for iPhone and iPod. Online at alltechlansing.com. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Greg Karmasar is not really the correct title. Most people are calling her the potential intellectual property czar. That's not really the official title either. But President Obama has nominated Victoria Espinel to be the White House's intellectual property enforcement coordinator. Congress last year mandated that somebody be put into this position. She's going to have to be approved by the Senate before she actually gets the job, but she is the candidate. Obviously, her actions are going to affect everybody who is downloading music. But more than that, it's not just us music geeks. I mean, there's some 18 million jobs in the United States that are affected by digital copyright issues. And it's been the Wild West, you know, mm-hmm. since, since the advent of the Internet. Some people uh, want to keep it the Wild West. Everything should be free, and other people want the government to come on strong, and as they're doing in France, and to really assert themselves in protecting creators' rights on the web. To get a little bit more insight on this potentially momentous appointment, we turn to a past guest on the show, member of the Future of Music Coalition based in Washington, D.C. He's the policy director there, Michael Bracey. Michael, welcome to Sound Opinions again. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So, Michael, we wanted to get your take on some big news out of Washington. President Obama has named Victoria Espinel the White House's so-called intellectual property czar. What do you see this representing for the future of intellectual property? Yeah, well, that's a great question. The concept of the position sort of makes some sense and is actually in line with a lot of what we've talked about at Future Music over the last decade, which is that we have to have a better recognition that all the policies that get made in all the different pockets of the federal government really at a certain level interconnect as they relate to the music community. So decisions that made at Justice Department have an impact in the Federal Trade Commission and the FCC, and, and they all sort of uh, interconnect. So the idea of having a single coordinating person is actually okay. I think what some people have been concerned about with this position is that that person may have too much authority or may be too close to the White House and the president and may be able to steer intellectual property policies in a direction that would either be too copyright maximalist and and, and too kind of pro-Hollywood or on the other end kind of too technology-focused and quote-unquote copy-left. And the sense that that we're getting, and and I think the kind of conventional wisdom here in D.C., is that this appointment and this particular 
candidate is really kind of a very safe down-the-middle hire that's not really going to be too disruptive one way or the other. So, Michael, every interview we've done on the looming confusion and change in intellectual property in the United States, every expert we've talked to, half of them say the courts really need to get a grip on this and figure out copyright issues as they pertain to the digital realm. The other half are saying Congress really needs to rewrite copy laws in the states. People are not necessarily saying that the executive branch of our fine government needs to get on top of this. Are you getting a sense that this new czar will lead some sort of initiative for new laws, either to encourage the courts to clarify their rulings or to encourage Congress to reopen copyright in general? Yeah, it's phenomenally complicated. What we think, though, at Future Music is that part of the challenge of readdressing copyright in a digital age is that you can't just take copyright and put it in a vacuum and say, you know, fix this, fix that. You know, we have always felt very strongly that there's a deep connection between what you do with copyright law and what happens with the evolution of what we like to call the legitimate digital music marketplace. And for for us, what that means is How do music consumers have access to technology? Is there competition in the broadband market? Do we have net neutrality that ensures that you can have innovative applications designed that that consumers can then get get onto the intertubes and access, things like that? These things all interconnect in, in very important ways. So what we think actually is much more important than the nomination of the copyright coordinator is actually what's happening over at the FCC with the evolution of a national broadband plan and announcements that came out this week from uh, FCC Chairman Janikowski about his strong support for net neutrality regulations. We want to see what happens when you have ubiquitous broadband access by consumers, when you have much more competition in the marketplace, so consumers are paying less money per month to get access to the Internet, so they hypothetically have more money to put into legitimate licensed services and applications of the kind that you're starting to see develop, you know, from streaming services to satellite radio to uh, download services, subscription services, etc. When we get to that point, when we have a much better sense of, of how that economy is working, when you start to see how that money flows back through to artists and creators, then we'll have a much better sense of what, if anything, needs to be tweaked in copyright law that's going to make this type of economy function. Michael, does this bring us a step closer to where some European governments are right now, notably France, in getting very involved in the peer-to-peer issues? Do you see the U.S. government moving a step closer to doing something like that with this appointment? Well, again, you have to remember that that this appointment is really a reaction to a congressional mandate. It doesn't feel like it's a huge priority. Now, clearly, there's a lot of disagreement, a lot of debate, and, and a lot of valid debate about the best way to solve the sort of big existential problem that everybody faces is what do you do with this unauthorized traffic? And you know, are the European models and, and the tough enforcement, three strikes you're out, and that kind of stuff, are there strategies there that the government should look at more strongly to actually solve some of these problems? We don't really see that happening. Our anticipation in terms of, of the administration's focus is, again, uh, looking at more of the carrot as opposed to the stick. But, but Michael, we, we've reported on Sound Opinions. It's been widely discussed in, in the net world. Two of the uh, top appointments to the Justice Department by the Obama administration were attorneys who represented the record companies in suits against people accused of illegal downloading. Sure. You're exactly right that there are now some folks in the Justice Department who have represented the, the major record labels and, and the Hollywood kind of content industries in lawsuits. There also are people at the Justice Department who came out of the Consumers Union and came out of other um, organizations that really were very skeptical of, of those types of strategies. Our anticipation, again, is that 
the administration in terms of the specific sort of regulatory tools or enforcement tools that they want to take to deal with unauthorized content, to deal with policing the net, are, are really going to take a little bit of a wait-and-see approach to really understand what you know, the true problems are and what those remedies could be. Michael Bracey, uh, Future of Music Policy Director, thanks again for uh, being on Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me, guys. Talk soon. You're listening to Sound Opinions. you're hearing is a little bit of revolution from the Beatles rock band video game. Uh, The Beatles debuted this game a couple of weeks ago, a major marketing phenomenon. Why is this such a big deal? Well, the music industry is trying to make it so because it needs a new revenue stream desperately. And with the advent of Guitar Hero in 2005 and Rock Band in 2007, it seems to have found one. Since then, $3 billion worth of these games have been sold. In addition, individual songs from actual bands are selling at $2 a piece. So in other words, the video game players are continually replenishing their supply of songs by buying them at two bucks a piece. So this is a continuing revenue stream for the bands, for the music industry, and a huge bonus for the music industry at a time when compact disc sales are tumbling. Greg, you and I have mentioned both Guitar Hero and Rock Band from time to time in passing on the show, and we never fail to get a flood of feedback from listeners, which we welcome and we listen to. I have noted that some some 13-year-olds in my acquaintance who I know and love very dearly were taking guitar lessons and then abandoned that to play the game because it's more fun to sit and play a game. But we've also heard from a lot of our listeners who are guitar teachers and parents who said, you know, my kid was not interested in music at all until he or she began playing these games, and it's been their gateway into music. So the jury's out on, on, on I guess, even how we feel about them. There's no doubt about it, Jim. Uh, we want to bring in somebody who is intimately involved with the making of these games. Uh, let's talk to Greg Lopiccolo, who is the VP of Product Development at the video game company Harmonix. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the company. I was a musician in a band, uh, like a local Boston band, and uh, I got sidelined into a freelance job doing video game soundtracks, which led me to Harmonix in the late 90s, and I've been there ever since. Because we're rock critics, uh, Greg, we have to ask you what the band was and what you played. Uh, it was a Boston-area band called Tribe. Yeah, it was part of that like Big Dipper scene, right? Yeah, exactly. At the Rat and of... stuff like that? Yep, absolutely. All right, channel, okay. Uh, and I played bass. All right, now, now that we got that in, <laughs> we got that in line. Oh, thank you for the plug. Uh, <laughs> it's 15 years too late, but I appreciate it. So in the early days of Harmonix, Guitar Hero put you on the map. Um, what were the days leading up to that like? How did the company become what it is today? Well, so in the, in the late 90s, Harmonix like, basically like soaked up a bunch of video game talent, including myself and some other folks. Um, and music games were just starting to happen in Japan, things like Beatmania and Parappa the Rapper. We saw that stuff and said, "Hey, wait a minute! This is you know this is our vehicle. This is the way that we want to bring our vision to a, to a mass audience." So we built a game called Frequency, which was published by Sony, which was sort of a critical cult favorite. Did terribly in the marketplace, sold very poorly, but that kind of put us on the map as like pretty much the only standalone music game developer in North America at that point. 
So we we got a deal with uh, Konami to do some karaoke games, which were moderately successful. And then we worked with a very small publisher called Red Octane uh, that I think hadn't published any games to date. But they had expertise in, in context in China to do peripherals, you know, um, like plastic guitars. And so they came to us and said, if, you know, if we make the guitars, will you do the software? And we said, absolutely, because we were all kind of rock people. And so we banged out Guitar Hero in, I don't know, nine months. It was a very short, low-budget project and uh, struck a nerve. Tell us a little bit about this transition from Guitar Hero to Rock Band. How did that go? So we, we did Guitar Hero. And you know, somewhat to everyone's surprise, it took off like crazy. It was clearly like a you know a, a big hit. And on the strength of that hit, Red Octane was acquired by a giant game publisher called Activision. In a similar time frame, Harmonix was acquired by MTV. But the the Guitar Hero rights went with the publisher to Activision. And so since we we didn't have the right to actually do Guitar Hero games, we started our own brand called Rock Band, which at the same time uh, allowed us to pursue the direction that we really wanted to go, which was not just guitar, but the, the, the entire band. So we could do bass and drums and vocals as well. And that's how we ended up competing with ourselves. <laughs> well, it, you know, it, it's great to get this primer directly from you, Greg, because there is this generational divide now with the gamers and old people like me and Greg, <laughs> who primarily... And me. Yeah. And, and you, right, who primarily <laughs> either play music on instruments or listen to music on, on you know, stereos, right? Um, mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about how, how the Beatles got involved with Rock Band, because this, I think, is going to be the watershed moment. It's going to be hard a year from now to, to say you've never played Rock Band, I really believe. Well, I, I hope that you're right. Um, just so to summarize, uh, basically... George Harrison's son, Danny Harrison, was an early adopter of Guitar Hero. I think, you know, found, heard about it word of mouth, bought it, loved it, and bumped into Van Toffler, who's the, the CEO of MTV, in a resort someplace, I don't even know where, and mentioned that this was right when, when Harmonix was being purchased by MTV. Mentioned, I've played this game, Guitar Hero, I love it, it's amazing. And I think Van said to him, well, we just bought the company that made that, so Van introduced him to Alex Rogopoulos, our CEO, and I think they just, you know, sort of had a casual friendship for a while. And, you know, we're just kind of going back and forth. Gee, wouldn't it be amazing to have the Beatles in this game? Oh, yeah. that will never happen, you know. Uh, but then I think Danny floated it to his mom and, and, and the other Beatles and, and Yoko, you know, the sort of the, the Apple Corps, the whole Beatles organization. And they were very cautious and very hesitant, but were, in, you know, interested in learning more. And so we went through a, a set of exercises to try to kind of figure out what it would be and what it would look like and so forth. So we would do some work and send it off. And as we dug into it, their confidence went up until the point at which they kind of got it and said, yeah, you know what, this would be cool and it could be true to the spirit of the band and the band's ideals and, you know, in a way yeah. to present the band's music to a new generation. And uh, we were off and running. Part of what attracted them was the difference between rock band and Guitar Hero, right? And, and I mean, just briefly sketch for us the different aesthetics of those two games. Well, <laughs> it's a weird thing for me to talk about because, th- you know, because we actually did the first two Guitar Heroes and, in a very specific style, which which we, you know, still have a lot of affection for. But it's not now it's owned by Activision. We have nothing to do with that franchise. So in whatever direction it goes in is really sort of out of our hands. Uh, well, if, as, I, if I can play critic, I mean, rock uh, Guitar Hero is kind of cartoonish. It, it is. It was conceived as sort of like a high school heavy metal meatheads conception of music, and you know, which is something that we all, you know, are dearly, you know, beloved to all of us on staff. We we were that meathead, you know, and yeah. we still like love that aesthetic. 
But Rock Band was really, as a you know, broader base, really kind of more of a platform to, to showcase all of rock music across all genres. So there's a lot of genre quotes in it, and we cover a lot of different kinds of music, but it's just, it's more, yeah, it's less cartoonish and more general in terms yeah, of its yeah. vibe. I mean, we've seen replacements in Rock Band. We would not have seen them, or Dylan, in Guitar Hero. Yeah. I mean, it's been our ambition from day one to really do justice, to pay respect to all genres and do justice to all genres, you know, and really have it be this inclusive environment. No, it's been incredibly successful. Rock Band, as of late last year, had already surpassed 4 million sales. That was like in about a year's time, you'd sold 4 million units. Revenues of over 600 million. I'm sure it's been more since then, although sales, I, I understand, of the video game industry in general are down. But how big of a factor was that? in your discussions with the Beatles about getting them involved. Did they see this as a potential new revenue opportunity, or was it all about aesthetics? I mean, what was that discussion like in getting them excited about the game and getting involved in the game? I don't, I can't really share any insights with you about, like, their approach to the revenue. That didn't really come up in any of the conversations I was involved in. Like, pretty much the only things that that we ever really talked about was how to make it true to the band and how to celebrate the band's music and sort of the the I think the fascination that they had and expressed with this being a new way to experience the music which was great for us to hear because that's you know kind of a huge conviction we have about about rock band and in related games that like once you play them and once you're familiar with them you I think come to understand that you get inside the music in a way it's just not possible listening to on a, on a stereo, even if you're paying attention. Like for like McCartney's bass lines. I mean, one of the great things for me, the gratifying things about putting this game out is like there's all these people now who are like, oh my God, McCartney's an amazing bass player. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which you really get much better handle on if you're playing the parts and you're listening to the parts. I saw an interview in one of the uh, websites with the the drum designer saying, you know, Ringo's finally going to be vindicated. People are going to realize just how subtly difficult some of those syncopated beats are and the rim yeah, shots. Yeah, the- that's right, because you actually have to play the parts. I mean, at the easier levels, so they're simplified for you, but you know, at the expert level of you know rock band Beatles, you're basically playing Ringo's parts for the most part, and they're amazing parts. We're going to continue our discussion about Rock Band and the Beatles with Greg Lopiccolo of Harmonics after a short break on sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Later on, we're going to review new albums from The Flaming Lips and The Gossip.
Alright, let's go. Two, three, four. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and we're talking to Greg Lopiccolo, who's the VP of Product Development at Harmonix. Harmonix recently released the Beatles rock band to big acclaim. Um, Greg, could you talk a little bit about developing this project? It's gone from the game being invented in 2007 to this huge rollout with the Beatles in 2009. I mean, that's amazingly fast. The Beatles never move very fast on anything. So what got this process rolling in what is record time for the Beatles? Well, again, this is the only Beatles interaction that I've ever been involved with, so I, I can't really speak to, you know, their normal rhythm. In our case, it was pretty much very like a pure creative collaboration that was uh, unique in a lot of regards, but I think it was pretty much like, we want to put it out at this point, and this is what we need from you, and um, we would serve stuff up in whatever stage of disarray, and they would comment, and we would respond to those comments and give them a new one, you know. And they had very targeted criticisms about how they looked and, you know, which songs and every aspect. of They were very hands-on, and we were basically very focused on making them happy. And I think as they saw it to come together, their confidence went up, and they said, fine, let's go. Is we- this true that many of the cubicles in Cambridge at Harmonix were uh, decorated with a picture of McCartney looking right at the camera and saying, don't F this up? <laughs> uh, it is true. <laughs> There's no, a little and that's bit very, of pressure. <laughs> no, it's it, and there was that pressure, and we felt that pressure, you know, because this is essentially Beatles canon, right? This right. is like 20 years from now that this will be the Beatles video game, and uh, and we had one crack at it, and we, we didn't want to screw it up. I'm, I'm curious how they operate, because when we say the Beatles, we're really talking about four entities who have operated as separate fiefdoms for a long time now. When you say they... Who exactly are you talking to? Do they speak individually? Did they speak with one voice in critiquing this? I mean, what was the procedure for for critiquing the uh, advances in the game as you went along? Well, so basically the four people are Ringo, Paul, Yoko, and Olivia Harrison. And they all have to agree on everything. And that's my understanding of like, you know, if they're going to do a Beatles project, everybody has to be signed on. You know, sometimes they would get together and look at it together. and, and, And a lot of the time it would be separately and we would just... We would see the send stuff to Apple Records in London, or um, or sometimes we would go to New York, or we would go to them. They would come to us. Uh, Yoko actually came to visit us at one point. Uh, we got a lot of incredibly valuable feedback from her, you know, just right on site. Well, and it's interesting too that this is the this is really the digital rollout for the Beatles catalog, rather than going to iTunes or some music store, which was everybody was expecting was going to happen. They chose Rock Band to sort of go into this realm. What was it like working that process, the, the sonic end of it? Because it, obviously the, the mixes on these songs are, are pretty revelatory. It went hand-in-hand hand with the, the rollout of the CDs as well. Well, to do audio for these kind of games requires a completely different audio process than is, you know, if you're remastering a CD, right, you're generally you're going back to the initial, the, the final mixed stereo master and you're like re-equalizing it or taking out noise or whatever. Right. But in the case of our games, we're generally working with the original multi-track 
the original sources. So if, you, if you're playing rock band, you're playing bass, and you screw up the bass part, like the bass stops playing. Or if it's the drums, the, the drums stop playing. So for the, the stuff later in their career, when they did it on multitrack, it was easier because in, in those cases, we had the original multitrack masters to find, you know, so we had like drums and bass and guitar and vocals on separate tracks. But for all the earlier stuff, I mean, that was all like two or three track. And in that case, Giles Martin, who was the audio director at Apple, George Martin's son, had to just go through these incredible contortions, use, you know, sort of state-of-the-art studio technology to try to carefully it, like, use, like, filters and whatnot to, to separate drums and bass and guitar from, from, these, from these stereo mixes where, you know, we, we didn't have access to any multitrack masters. But it was a completely separate and parallel process to the, uh, to the, the remastering of the CDs. Wow. So, so just to, to clear that up, for, for the mm-hmm. later multi-track recordings, you are literally, you know, if there's eight tracks, they've erased McCartney's bass track for, for this part of the game where you're going to play bass. You are literally side-by-side, track-wise, sonically, with the other Beatles as they perform at Abbey Road. Yeah, basically the way the illusion of the gameplay works is like if you're playing your part, then the part is present in the mix. And if you stop playing the part or you play it incorrectly, then your instrument vanishes out of the mix. And which is, you know, really sort of the whole kind of hook to all to these kind of games, you know, to Rock Band, is you get this incredible illusion that you're playing the part. The whole process of actually recreating the mixes, I mean, I know Giles worked very, very hard to come up with a final mix where if everyone's playing their part properly, it sounds as close as he could to the original mix. Mm-hmm. Which I think is why, you know, because a lot of people have very visceral reactions to these games. They don't like them. They think, well, why not play a real guitar? Uh, and I think the answer to that is, well, you should go play a real guitar. I mean, people harmonics are happy. The more people take up real instruments, the happier we are. But it's not, you're not performing music. You're playing a game. It's a, it's a different experience. Yeah. Let's take on some of these aesthetic arguments. Not that Greg and I agree with them, but I think it's going to be great, Greg Lopiccolo, to have you answer them. And, and you've heard them all before. So, so you were talking about the pretending to be aspect of, of making the music, you know, Virtual sex isn't real sex. The ability to <laughs> go to your basement, turn that amp up to 10, hit a chord, even if you got, you know, half the notes wrong, and yell and scream while you do so is a very, very different experience than drumming with Ringo. I would argue a better experience, you know, because A, it ticks off mom and dad, and B, boy, does it get those demons out. Absolutely. And play playing in your bedroom, I think the argument is that, you know, if you're going to, play rock band for two or three hours a day what could you be doing with those three hours if you were in your bedroom learning how to play a real instrument so you know there's not a simple answer to that so i'll give you a you know a few different ones one is like so one of the kind of standard things that gets put up is like well people are playing these games instead of settling down with a real instrument and our experience has been exactly the opposite um, which is that you know a lot of people who approach these games never even considered playing the guitar or drums. Uh, in fact, that we, you know one of the things one of the dilemmas for us initially when we were working guitar here was like, does anybody care about rock guitar anymore, yeah. or is it all yeah. like samplers and turntables and things? Like we didn't at the at the point where that came out, there was no real cultural focus on rock guitar as this awesome thing like there was when I was a teenager, where you know people were guitar gods and you knew their names and so forth. And not everyone's going to stick with it, but one of the most important things we think these games are doing is really just a, a vehicle for the appreciation of the music 
and to put the idea into people's heads that like, hey, I could play this music. You know, I could spend my time that yeah. way. Well, Greg and I are really divided on that because every time we mention the game, we do hear uh, either in the newspaper or on the radio show, we hear from the pro people, the guitar teachers, uh, and the anti-people. <laughs> uh, let, let me raise a more complicated aesthetic argument. Boy, I sat with Kurt Cobain, as did Greg Cott, and what he meant to us as a musician and what he did. And now to see the avatar on Guitar Hero, which you're not, you have nothing to do with that. It's post your involvement, uh, singing a Bon Jovi song. Wow. <laughs> I well, think it trivializes so, the music in well, a way this that... Well, is, this is tricky territory for me because, like, you know, this was done by our competition, and I don't necessarily want to get into a, like, pissing match with them on the radio, but I will say this, and probably nothing more, is, like, we found that dis- distasteful, and I think we would never have done such a thing. Yeah. All right. Well, let's 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 bring it to the Beatles. Let's bring it to the Beatles. As as students of rock history, Greg mm-hmm. and I know that in those Hamburg days when they were playing the Reeperbahn, they were you know young men on the prowl, on their own for the first times in their lives, playing American rock and roll music. They were proto punk rock. There are stories of of John Lennon getting so angry at some of the sailors who would come to see the band, not paying attention, that he would urinate off the stage on them. <laughs> you don't get that experience in in rock band. They they're cleaned up. They're not dangerous. That's right. And they, they don't take drugs. They don't fight late in their career. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, no, it's during, an idea. Even during the psychedelic part. I mean, you get all those right. cool colors and stuff. But they were tripping like wildebeest, <laughs> taking acid and making Tomorrow Never Knows. So, I mean, and it, well, it's interesting because it occupies this, this middle ground. It tells the story of the Beatles, but it tells an idealized story of the Beatles, which I think is fine. I mean, the thing is, it, it's not like a gritty documentary. It's an entertainment product designed to... Immerse people in those aspects of the Beatles that most of us really hold dear, which is their music. Yeah, we're talking about forty-five songs here, basically, right? I mean, that's what uh, the with game's another with. with another three albums worth to be released as downloadable content over the next several months. So we'll have all of Abbey Road, all of uh, Rubber Soul, and all of Sgt. Pepper. That that's fascinating. Let, let's talk about the updatable network aspect of the game. You know, Sub Pop's coming online too, right? I mean, this is soon going to be a music distribution system as well, well as a game. It already it already is. is. Yeah. Well, well, the interesting thing about Sub Pop is, is Sub Pop is coming on through a new initiative we have called the Rock Band Network, which is basically like a major initiative that we just we're, we're launching to allow any band. Signed, unsigned, whatever. Anybody who has access to their multi-track masters to basically author up songs to our spec, submit them to a review process, you know, peer review process, and if they pass muster technically, just put them on sale in the Rock Band store for which we'll give them, you know, a a respectable uh, royalty. So it, it's it's pretty fascinating because uh, as of late last year, you had already sold 30 million songs off of Rock Band. Yeah, it's and, up to uh, 50, 50. It's over 50 one. now? Yeah. yeah. And about a million every nine days are being sold, apparently. So this is obviously a burgeoning platform for new music. Are, are you finding that labels and bands and managers are coming to you guys? I mean, what, what's that like in terms of the demand to have that music on Rock Band? And what are your criterion for putting somebody into the Rock Band uh, realm? Well, certainly, given the success that we've had, you know, we get a lot more calls than we used to. And there's certainly like a long list of acts who want to get their music into the game. And one of the reasons, you know, there was a number of reasons, but one of the major reasons we started the Rockman Network is that we simply don't have, 
like to 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 prep songs for releasing the game is very labor intensive. We have an army of you know highly trained people who all they do all day long is is author songs and and do mixes and so forth. So part of the rock band I, network idea was essentially to open the floodgates and allow people just to apply their own effort to it and not have us be the bottleneck. We have a certain amount of requests come in from MTV, like, you know, to tie it as a, a movie or some band is coming out with, you know, a record and can we release a you know, three-pack to coincide with their release and so forth. But frankly, most of it is like what we like and what we want to do. Uh, we feel sort of a responsibility. I mean, obviously, we want to put out mostly stuff that we think will sell. Um, but uh, we have very little constraints on us. Like, we're just basically huge rock fans, and we sit around and argue about what should go in the game, and uh, whoever wins the argument goes on the list, and when we get to it, we put it out. So we put, you know, Mission of Berm has gone out, No Doubt, uh, Jimmy Buffett, Dead Kennedys, you know, it's like it's a huge, beautiful world of rock and roll out there, and, uh, and our ambition is to cover all of it. Thank you so much, Greg, for being on Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me. To make a comment on the air about video games or anything in the world of rock and roll, give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. You can also send us an email at interact at soundopinions.org or talk to us on Facebook. Jim and I are going to return on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with reviews of new albums by The Flaming Lips and The Gossip. Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing and their new mixed speaker system, the next generation boombox for iPhone and iPod. Online at alltechlansing.com. She submits as she donates. She gets out. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is The Flaming Lips with a new song called Convinced of the Hex from their 12th studio album, Embryonic. The Flaming Lips, they have been around since the mid 
80s. Hard to believe that this band has been around since the mid-80s when they were on the psychedelic fringe of the independent rock scene. An obscure band destined for uh, obscurity because of the style of music they played in a lot of ways. Had an unexpected commercial breakthrough in 1993 with an album called Transmissions from the Satellite Heart and sort of a novelty hit with a song called She Don't Use Jelly. Followed it up about a decade later with three albums. The Soft Bulletin in 1999, Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots in 2002, and At War with the Mystics in 2006, which were three pretty big-selling albums. The key signpost of that era, a song called Do You Realize, which you've probably seen in about a million car commercials (laughs) about now. Uh, But nonetheless, here was this band with the unlikeliest of resources, starting out in the middle of literally nowhere, in the great plains state of Oklahoma, bursting through to the national consciousness uh, with some actual pop songs that got played on commercial radio. So here they are in 2009 with a double album length CD, 18 songs spread over 72 minutes, embryonic, recorded with their longtime producer, Dave Fridman. Let's play a song from it first uh, before we give you a review. It's a song called I Can Be a Frog with Karen O of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah singing a duet with Wayne Coyne on Sound Opinions. She said, I can be a frog. I can be a bat. I can be a bear. Or I can be a cat. She said, I can be a That is I Can Be a Frog by the Flaming Lips with a little bit of background animal noise from Karen O of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs here on Sound Opinions. Twelfth studio album by this incredible band, Greg. I do not feel compromised in critiquing the Flaming Lips, even though I was their biographer, because uh, Wayne Coyne is unique in the history of rock and roll, in my experience and yours, in that I've been arguing with him since I first met him. I have been 
disappointed in a big way by the lips in the new millennium. They struck on a new sound and a new way of presenting it on stage in 1999 after the soft bulletin, where we got this multimedia assault of people dressed in animal costumes and confetti and balloons, and mm-hmm. Wayne would climb inside the space bubble and roll over the heads of the crowd, and it started to become much more of a weird cross between Ken Casey's acid tests and Cirque du Soleil uh, <laughs> than it was a rock show. But the Lips once were an incredible psychedelic rock band. In fact, this is not their first song that we just played about amphibians, mm-hmm. I Can Be a Frog. You know, Wayne's been singing about amphibians and bugs <laughs> and, and weird things for, for a very long time, but they hasn't been doing it in the old way, where it was guitar-based drums driven. They've needed to change up the program for some time, get away from the studio orchestrations, as brilliant as they are, crafted by multi-instrumentalist Stephen Drozd, and do some rock and roll, in my humble opinion. I've been mm-hmm. telling Wayne that for a decade. I want to hear you guys rock out again, because you, Wayne Cohen, are a great guitarist, and Stephen Drozd, one of the best drummers in rock history, certainly of his generation, of the alternative generation. They have a, a new touring drummer now, Cliff Skurlock. He's playing on a lot of these tracks. Stephen's playing drums. The band is recording as a band doing freaky jams. This is a very long, meandering, jammed-out, psychedelic rock record with bursts of melody, but its main reason for existence is to be like a Pink Floyd or can jammed-out, twisted headphones extravaganza. Does it succeed or fail? The Lips have done this before. They've done it better. Mm -hmm. I will say that. But I am so glad to hear them doing something different and not, you know, as cute as it was, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah song or the Wand from the last album. You know, they've turned this record out in pretty quick time and they've done something different. And I'm excited about it. I think it's a buy it record on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. Jim, I uh, agree with you. I think this band was long overdue to get back to that more organic, psychedelic rock sound that, frankly, I loved from the early early 90s. They have become much more of a multimedia project since then, and they have lost some of that essence that made them such a great band during that period. Uh, and this is definitely a step in the right direction. However, I think there's going to be a fan base out there that is wondering, what the heck happened to My Flaming Lips? There, yeah. There's a whole bunch of fans that joined on with uh, Do You Realize in 99 from the Soft Bulletin, and they're going to wonder where the songs went. I mean, that Karen O collaboration we just played is about as close as you get to an actual song on this entire record. There may be three or four others where there's uh, more of a sense of melody and structure. Otherwise, it's interesting to hear Coyne talk about things like those Miles Davis electronic records from the early 70s. And it's also fascinating to hear this band attempt to play them. I think the 80s incarnation of the Lips, which in some ways these records are hearkening back to, that sort of chaotic sound they had back then, was incapable of even attempting to do something like that. But now, as you mentioned, with people like Stephen Droz in the band and Cliff Skurlock on drums, they have the chops to attempt to do something like that. Yeah. And some of this record is, is well done in that regard. It's much uh, more jazzy than the old Lips rock Absolutely. Records. Much more jazz-oriented. And I think the can reference you made is an apt one for the kind of sound they were going for. But remember, can could get pretty far out there, too. You think you know? it lose the plot, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the other thing that's interesting about this record, uh, the distortion on the bass is just... <laughs> I mean, you're thinking there's going to be something defective with your speaker system when you put this record on.
So from that standpoint, the Lips have really tested the boundaries of what fans expect of them and what kind of band they can be still in 2009. I applaud the ambition of this record. However, I think the execution is somewhat lacking. I wish they had formed some of these uh, fascinating ideas into more coherent songs. And as a result, I'm going to have to give this a burn it instead of a buy it. That is the title track from the new album by the Gossip Men in Love. It's a record that you and I have both been looking forward to hearing, uh, their major label debut. This is a band that has been around since 1999 when they first recorded for uh, the small uh, K Records label and moved on after that to Kill Rockstars. They have been underground darlings for quite some time, coming out of Olympia, Washington, although the roots for the group were in rural Arkansas. It's a trio now, guitarist Nathan, a.k.a. Brace Payne, a new drummer who came on, uh, I think, for the last album, Hannah Billy, and a front woman, a front woman who is truly one of the uh, the most distinctive presences <laughs> in rock and roll to emerge in the last decade, at least. Beth Ditto. She has been embraced by the British press especially, who just cannot stop putting her on the covers of magazines. Beth is an activist in a couple of key areas. Obviously, the women's rights movement, you know, she's a feminist. The gay rights movement, she is. She's a proud lesbian. Mm. And most importantly to me, I got some guff the last time we talked about the gossip for noting that Beth is fat. I am fat. (laughs) Beth is a proud, fat activist. This is how she describes herself. Because really at the core of, of a lot of issues about, about uh, for women in this country is sizeism. Mm-hmm. You know? Sure. Uh, it's the last great taboo. She tackles all of these issues. She does it with incredible good humor. And they began to get a heck of a lot of attention with the last album, Standing in the Way of Control, which yielded a really cool disco punk hit with that title track. They wind up getting signed to a major label and now produced by Rick Rubin, superstar producer, you know, of everybody from Red Hot Chili Peppers to Johnny Cash. What are they giving us on this new highly anticipated Men in Love album? We're going to play a song. We're going to come back. We'll give our review. This is a tune called Eighth Wonder by Beth Ditto and the Gossip on Sound Opinions. Thank you. 
Wonder from the Gossip, their fourth studio album, Music for Men. First on a major label, as you noted, Mr. DeRigatis. Also, uh, first to be produced by one Rick Rubin. (laughs) (laughs) Producer to the stars. The man who has uh, worked wonders with people like Johnny Cash, bringing them back out of obscurity into the public light with his production work on his 90s albums. And, uh, you know, Slayer, LL Cool J, Neil Diamond, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Ruben has his pick of who he wants to work with, so it was significant that he said, you know, I want to I sign the gossip, I want to work with this band, I think they can be stars. However, I think Rick Rubin has done them no favors. And Absolutely. specifically Beth Ditto, no favors. I think this is a terrific band. Uh, Hannah Billy is a terrific drummer, and she actually sounds great on this record. Those crisp, precise beats are, are all over the place. This is very much a dance rock band. Think of early new wave bands. I'm thinking, uh, you know, the Romeo Voids of the world, the B-52s, maybe even a little gang of four. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're definitely channeling that sound. I love that sound normally. That's the sound that this band came up with, playing a much rawer version of it. And what was so exciting about it, what made them stand apart from the pack that was playing in that style, was Beth Ditto's voice. A great singer. She brought this blues raspiness, this passion to what she was singing about, these issues that you were talking about, the feminism and the gay rights and the fact that she was a robust, oversized woman. You know, singing with a great deal of of feeling about this. And you can hear at the end of Eighth Wonder where she sort of breaks through that sheen that Rick Rubin puts on this record. But that is the only spot in this record where I really feel that Ditto is allowed to be Ditto. Otherwise, yeah. she sounds like a almost a mannequin, like she's plugged into these uh, really precise punk disco songs, and the personality has been muted to the point where I think they do a serious disservice to what this band is about. Do you see the tears? (laughs) It's breaking my heart. I love Beth Ditto, you know, dearly. Were I not happily married and were she not gay, I would want to marry Beth Ditto. (laughs) She she represents the life force that I love most Mm. in all great rock and roll. She stands to be one of the, the most distinctive and wonderful front women in the history of this music and Rick Rubin throws a wet blanket over her. It's both overproduced and and just soulless, viveless. You know, I personally have always thought Rubin is one of the most overrated producers ever. You know, aside from like Johnny Cash, where he just sat there, microphone, one guitar, that was it, right? He doesn't do anything. The actual productions have, have often been cold and, and, and lacking any sort of intimacy with the music. How you could listen to Standing in the Way of Control or ever see this band live and do the kind of sterile production that he imposes upon them. I, I don't want to let Beth and the band off the hook. You know, they signed off on this. I don't know if they, they felt as so many bands do when they come up from the underground quickly quickly 
into the major label world that they had to listen to people, that they didn't know what was best for their own music. But but having interviewed Beth many times and being such an admirer of her, I find a hard time getting my head around the fact that she would cave. You know what I mean? Nobody mm. tells Beth Ditto what to do, and that's what's wonderful about her. So I don't know what happened here, but buy it, burn it, trash it. Much as it pains me to say it, Greg, but I would say trash it. I'd say trash 11 out of the 12 songs. Go out and find Eighth Wonder. That is the one song where Beth Ditto sounds like Beth Ditto. I'm sorry, Beth, but we have to be honest. That is a double trash it on the new Gossip record. Uh, It was a buy it from me and a burn it from Greg on the Flaming Lips record. We now have uh, a new review section on our website at soundopinions.org that is interactive. You can chime in and add your two cents on anything we've reviewed. Take a look at what we've done on past shows. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we're going to establish that uh, rock and roll is much more than just guitar, bass, and drums. We're going to talk about the weird, strange, unconventional instruments that have been used on rock songs. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, and our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia, our favorite avatar on Rock Band. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, fellas. This is Andy Preston, Tempe, Arizona, and I want to make a comment about the Beatles uh, remasters. You guys said, don't bother if you're listening on an iPad. I gotta say, uh, folks should actually bother. I listen to everything on an iPod, and while I don't use the iPod headphones that, you know, come with it, just uh, a pair of Sonys that cost maybe 40 50 bucks. Not, you know, anything fancy, but, man, I can absolutely tell the difference. Uh, Ringo's drumming is awesome on this. Of course, uh, Paul McCartney's bass as well. Both of them uh, just need to jump out more in the mix. Based on a novel by a man named Lear And I need a job So I want to be a paperback writer Paperback writer It's absolutely worth it. Maybe when you get everything for free, I don't know, maybe it dulls your senses or something. But man, let me tell you, I, uh, it's been two weeks now since they came out, and I'm still listening to a bunch of them all the time. So, say bye. Paperback writer Hi, uh, this is Leon Zitzer calling from New York City. And my comment is this. I, I can't understand why you guys are so hard on artists who object to this um, liberalization, for want of a better word, this liberalization of how music will be made available. You know, it's one thing if an artist decides on their own that they want to make their music available for free as a way of promoting themselves. That's one thing. It's quite another thing if somebody else, like the government or the public, decides your work should be available for free. And it's not a contradiction if an artist decides that at the beginning of a career 
She wants to promote herself by making her music available for free. That's fine. But she's not contradicting herself if later on in her career she wants to sell her music. And she doesn't want people to have it for free. And you should respect it. Anyway, that's my comment, and um, I also want to say uh, you guys should be commended for encouraging uh, conversation and debate on these topics. I think you do a good job on that. Thanks a lot. Bye. Hello, Greg and Jim. This is Eric from Ann Arbor, Michigan, the home of the Stooges and MC5. I wanted to call and comment on the recent Desert Island jukebox collection of Lion Spiders very excellent band who was part of an excellent scene that a lot of people in the States don't hear enough about. My understanding is that a band called Radio Birdman, featuring guitarist Dennis Tech from Ann Arbor, Michigan, actually were the instigators of that scene with the high-energy use of rock and roll, soul, and a little bit of adventure-style surf guitar. Radio Birdman was an unsung band that actually did a reunion about two years ago where the state played a lot of excellent shows. So it'd be great if you guys could show them a little bit of love. Thanks. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.